Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include women in investment banking, cycles in American politics, and the future of the office. Our first speaker today will be Ann Clark Wolf. I attended Nutra High School with Ann, and we worked together at Solomon Brothers and Citigroup for over a decade. Ann managed the Fixed Income Capital Markets Group at Citigroup. She then led Global Sales for Treasury and Security Services at J.P. Morgan, and then most recently, Global Corporate Banking at Bank of America. American banker named Ann one of the most powerful women in banking. You may recall that Ann spoke on what happens next on our second episode, where she discussed that the uh, global capital markets would survive the pandemic. And in fact, they thrived. Anne's latest project is to create from scratch a women-run investment bank. I hope to learn from Anne what challenges she faces for setting up an investment bank from the ground up. I also want to find out what the market appetite is for investment banking advice from women bankers. Our second speaker will be Paul Ray. He is the Charles and Louise Lee Chair in the Western Heritage at the Van Endel Graduate School of Statesmanship at Hillsdale College. Paul has written on the classics from the ancient world, as well as the foundations of democracy that was introduced during the American Revolution. Today, Paul will speak about the cycles in American politics. Our third and final speaker is Lisa Picard, who is the CEO of EQ Office, which is Blackstone's office real estate division. Prior to that, Lisa ran Canyon Ranch Spawn Resorts. In her career, Lisa has managed the development of 6.5 million square feet of real estate with a market value of more than $5 billion. I hope to learn from Lisa about the future of office real estate. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or wish to read a transcript, you can find them at our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would like to expand our What Happens Next audience so that more people can enjoy our programming. I started a social media outreach using Twitter to increase listener engagement. Please use Twitter or email me questions during the live discussion. Our Twitter username is whathappens6, where 6 is the number. I want to hear from you. You can always email me at LarryBernstein1 at gmail.com. I've asked Susan Saltstein, who's one of my best friends, to join our discussion today. She's a partner in litigation at Skadden Arps. She will join me in asking some questions. Our first speaker today is my good friend, Anne Clark-Wolf. Anne, fire away. Great. Thanks, Larry. And it's great to be back with the group again. So since leaving Bank of America in January, I've decided to try to tackle some of the inherent challenges in the investment banking industry. I'm launching a new firm called Independence Point Advisors. So why? The current incentives on Wall Street have led to a decline in thoughtful corporate finance advice. Bankers focus on league tables and near-term ambulance chasing. Conflicts are abundant. Compliance restrictions frustrate. Public scrutiny on compensation has led to minimal pay for performance and high stock, low cash compensation frustrates many. So what do I hope to build? A place where exceptionally talented people with high content can provide great advice in a new ecosystem with attractive incentives. Elements of the old Solomon Brothers, 
What will we focus on? Independent capital markets advice, especially in the active debate founders face of whether they should do an IPO versus selling to a SPAC. Fixed income capital markets advice, given the absence of highly experienced people who are independent of the big balance sheet banks. And co-advisory and M&A to complement other advisors' perspectives. We hope to leverage a community we've curated of over 500 women who serve on corporate boards. Can they help us identify companies who are unhappy with their bankers? Can they point out where an independent advisor could be helpful in a key transaction? I've also discovered that there are talented people who would like to act as senior advisors partnering with an advisory firm, but they want part-time, flexible, compatible with other board obligations. And finally, is there a model where a modern firm can be flexible in location in less than 100-hour workweek increments? So what will be different? The key punchline is these exceptional people will be 70% women and minorities in a women-owned firm. We will only succeed with exceptional talent, and I'm mindful to not lead with diversity. But the question is whether diversity can be an added competitive advantage. So does diversity matter? There's been a lot written on the topic, and I know this group will have strong opinions. You could say diversity is the result of a level playing field in a competitive environment. Unless you believe white men have a monopoly on excellence, diversity is inevitable when the playing field is leveled. But does diversity lead to better advice? After 32 years of experience inside the three biggest banks, I've witnessed the benefit of diverse teams as well as the lack of cognitive diversity in client problem solving. There are fewer women managing directors at each firm today than there were at Solomon Brothers in 1990. When I was hired, I was interviewed by a woman PhD in math from Arkansas, a Lebanese man, a woman M&A banker, and a red-haired Midwestern man. This lineup would be unheard of today. While personal experience is always anecdotal, let me share some of the data that I found interesting. An enterprise decision-making platform studied business decisions made over a two-year period, and they concluded that diverse teams make better decisions 87% of the time, with geographic and age diversity the biggest contributors to improved decision-making. Mostly female organizations were 44% more likely to include men and women in decision-making, 69% of the time, compared to mostly male organizations only 48% of the time. HBR published an article on why diverse teams are smarter and that they boiled it down to three, three key points. They focus more on facts, they process facts carefully, they're more innovative. BCG followed this up with their own view in the mix that matters, innovation through diversity, and found that companies with higher diversity in management earned 38% more in revenues from new products and services than those with lower diversity. And finally, the Pew Center studied areas where women are stronger. They're 34% better at compromise, 34% more likely to be honest and ethical, 25% more likely to stand up for their beliefs, and 25% better at mentoring. It's a lot of data, and I, knowing many of you, I know you will say, well, this isn't causal. So let's address the data cynics. From my own experience, women and minorities have had to be exceptional to secure a seat on Wall Street and then to survive in advance. 
I'm simply going to curate a group of talent that's always had to be exceptional, had to work hard, had to differentiate themselves by the quality of their advice and commitment to clients. Note, I am not aspiring to be 100% anything, not 100% woman or any one group. And white men are absolutely part of the solution if we're going to drive true diversity of thought. So then the question is, do companies care about diversity and their advice providers? In the capital markets, there's clearly a growing trend for companies to include minority firms, most of which came out of the muni market. And interestingly, none of them have tried to create a scalable advisory business or hire talent from the street. And yet, according to Refinitiv, minority banks took part in 29% of the debt sales this year versus 22% last year, which represented 43% of the proceeds in the U.S. investment-grade market, up from only 33% in 2020. But in M&A, do I think companies really care about diversity and their advice providers? Is this the last frontier? If they don't currently care, I think they will. Investors, for a variety of reasons, believe diversity is better and are walking the talk with their capital. And so there are four themes related to M&A advice. The first is the trend to clearly add a second independent advisor to a meaningful M&A deal. Independents have seen their market share grow from 5% to well in excess of 18%. The three or more women on corporate boards, when will board members ask about the diverse representation of their advisors? If companies can get great advice and show some of their fee stream is supporting a challenge or model to improve Wall Street diversity, could we benefit? And finally, will LPs continue to challenge private equity firms and reward firms that take creative approaches to building the pipeline of diverse talent. So can this succeed? The first challenge is there aren't that many women left on Wall Street and many are risk averse, despite the fact that what I'm building will offer them far superior economics. Will the big firms fundamentally fix what's required and hold on to this diverse talent? I'm willing to bet not, given what we're seeing in the female exodus from the workforce especially during COVID. And then finally, are there enough companies that want to play a role in broadening representation on Wall Street? Here, I'm optimistic. And I would close by saying, come join me or hire us. Thank you, Larry. Great. All right, so let's get right into it. Um, you say that there are fewer women on Wall Street and less diversity on Wall Street than when we started in Solomon. Um, I started at Solomon Brothers in the Capital Markets Group in 1987. Uh, the head of my department was Jessica Palmer. Uh, we had probably at least 50% women in our department, all in very senior positions. Why, um, why has, it been there, has there been a decline in women uh, participation in the management levels uh, of investment banks? What's driving that? So the first observation, when it was most noticeable to me was there was a big exodus of the population right behind me during the mid to late 90s when candidly a lot of women were dating men who became incredibly wealthy in the emergence of private equity and hedge funds. So as the work and the culture within the firms got frustrating, it became even easier for people to leave. But, but I would say there are three factors that are still true 20 years later. Uh, people leave because of inclusion. Uh, and I think that what you're seeing 
in fact, following Me Too was inclusions getting even worse. Um, you and I joked about when there was a stripper on the trading floor at Solomon. Women would say, that's fine. Just include me in enjoying that rather than excluding me. The second point would be the quality of the work and especially the quality of the work for this generation uh, has become, um, there's very little, there's even less client contact today than there was 20 years ago. And so you could spend three years at the beginning of your career in investment banking and not meet a single client. And so I think that if you're just sitting behind a computer till one or two in the morning, uh, I think that you're going to see less and less willingness to tolerate that. And then finally, the, the data is pretty clear that role models really matter. It's a big issue, especially for Black and Latino candidates coming up that they see just a complete absence and void at the senior levels. Uh, but even for women, the number of women I had to counsel on, yes, you could actually have children and do this job was stunning. And the number of those role models, um, frankly, have vanished. And so I think a lot of people in a very vibrant economy are, are choosing technology and other sectors. Yeah. And it's Susan Solstein. Um, you know, it's it's it is incredible those statistics, and I think that the what you've described, anecdotally from my perspective, is what I'm seeing also in the law, which is that women are leaving in in greater numbers and choosing uh, pathways that um, that don't lead to partnership. Um, but lead. And so, I guess one of the questions for you is, what about the bottom up? It seems that we're focused on, which I think we should you know, on women who have the experience already to be marketable in the, you know, in, in the, to companies, to boards. What about the daughters out there? And what do you think in terms of changes that need to be made to make sure that our daughters stick around, um, you know, in the various, um, you know, in, in, in the various um, firms around Wall Street? It's a great question, and given that, you know, our daughters are right dead smack in this demographic as 20-year-olds, it's amazing that our daughters and their friends wouldn't even think about either of our careers right now. So a big part of my passion is being committed to being 70% women and minorities at all levels, and the first thing I would do is a massive sophomore internship program. Because if you don't go to women and minorities when they are freshmen in college and say, try it, they don't believe that this world is even open to them. And so no matter how many times Goldman Sachs wants to think that they will show up at a campus, they're going to end up largely with self-selection with the people showing up to that meeting. So to me, this is you've got to start early. You've got to give people that first positive experience. And I do think that they're going to force us to change. And so what I find in talking with a lot of young women is when I talk about modernizing investment banking, what should the role of social media be in an industry that's been scared to death of social media? Where is the role for, for financial technology? You know, I see a real opportunity to try to be a digitally native investment bank. And then the final component is this, going back to just this whole concept of flexibility, I am thrilled that the three big bank CEOs are taking a very 60-year-old male approach to return to office 
because I don't think that the talent in the next generation is going to put up with that for much longer. And so I'm willing to take the risk that if we can make the work interesting, create some elements of flexibility, and I'm not naive to think that transactions can be done in a flexible time period, but I think that there's a way to meet this next generation in a very exciting way. And I'm hoping that their passion for mission will make them want to be part of what we're building. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a big part of what motivates me to try to do something that, that will be inherently difficult. We got a question from uh, Claire Graham. Claire is an intern on what happens next. Her question is, um, do you think it relates to a maternal leave policy? Um, and is that what's driving women away? Is that they, they, it, it's too challenging to have children while working for the bank? And if so, how would you change the maternal leave policy to allow women to stay? So a great question from Claire. Uh, so as the mother of two kids, I took both of my three-month maternity leaves, but frankly, some of my best client relationships are because I was on the BlackBerry when I was waiting to go into labor, not because I was a great banker, but because I was bored and you're sitting there waiting for something to happen that you can't control. So it's, I think the issue is less about maternity leave itself. And believe it or not, up until very recently, almost all of the big banks would cut women off of their email and their technology when they went on leave. Talk about feeling like you were left out and it was very hard then to come back to work. That's one of the things that we worked hard to change at both, both at B of A and at JP Morgan was just the absurdity of that policy. The real answer isn't maternity leaves. The issue is role models that show you can actually have kids and make it to your daughter's soccer game, that you can prioritize the piano recital and the way that I've always led both men and women is I'm very clear to say, if you think there's a choice between your child or your family and your job, there actually is no choice. You choose your kids. You choose that life experience. And the clients and the work will largely accept that. Um, the real issue with maternity leave is that young women tend to worry and anticipate a problem long before the problem exists. And so they tend to take themselves out of the running for sticking with it, thinking it will be a problem five to 10 years from now. And so my brilliant advice is just keep showing up. Show up and if you enjoy your job, you're gonna figure out how to make it work. And the corollary to that would be the women who've chosen to leave the workforce for more than a year, it is a nightmare getting back in. And that's one of the, I hope I'm going to figure out an angle of how to bring back some of the incredible talent because the world massively discriminates against women who take time off to raise their kids. And that just can't fundamentally continue, especially in a very tight economy. You mentioned uh, flexibility um, in your own, um, your plan. You said, here's what you said. You said, I'm, I'm looking for part-time women with flexible time flexible location and with less time constraints. Is that the critical variable that the major investment banks are missing? And is it that the role models at these institutions are 
individuals who you know work 100 hours a week are available all the time are on the plane all the time and is it is it is it the problem of the role model is it the problem of the inability for firms to find places for part-time flexible time people so it's a multi-part question I, you know what i do I believe that every CEO knows that they have a problem on diversity? Absolutely. Do I think one level down from the CEO, they probably know that? Yep. But then when you get three, four, and five levels down, and you think about the group head in investment banking, or even worse, the vice president in investment banking, that young woman, you know, the future Claire Graham, is going to be sitting there at one in the morning with a... 95% white male population who thinks it's completely appropriate to be there till two in the morning. And despite the fact that I, I truly believe senior people want to address some of the underlying problems, um, most of what happens in the boiler room is happening late at night and more driven by the mid-level population. And my own cynical view, and this is only my own view, is that group frankly resents like crazy all of the talk about diversity um, and you don't necessarily see carrots or sticks that would say at the mid-level you've really got to figure out how to keep as many different people in the game as long as possible so coming back to your point on role models if you don't see or or experience that role model you're in your day-to-day -day existence i think that's where a lot of people will just say it's too difficult um, I, I had well-worn couches at both B of A and J.P. Morgan, even when I was outside of investment banking, because there would be women on floors where they were the only person above an associate level on the entire floor. And so you know, it, it was basically seeking me out as just somebody, frankly, anybody who could give them a perspective of how of how to make it work. Um, but, but I go back to a little bit also that when we started together at Solomon, Larry, um, an interesting data point would be, I would say half of the men who we worked with in our early years had working wives. And I do think that a man whose wife either currently works or used to work, or even better, the man whose daughter works, is very different in terms of their uh, role modeling on making this all happen compared to a population today, which is in excess of 90% uh, where people have, have a stay-at-home partner who basically takes care of everything for them. So it, 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 I'd be lying if I said this is not an easy problem, but my own hope is if I can create a different ecosystem and if the minority is the majority and we want to deliberately change and leave the cultural baggage behind. I think that deliberate action will hopefully be really attractive to other other people, including white men, who want to see this finally change. We got another question from the audience. This one's from Valerie Blinn. Valerie wants to know if the bulge bracket firms are really just doing cosmetic recruiting. She says that when she started in M&A, it was about a 40% class of women uh, at the analyst and associate levels. But by the time she reached VP, it was only down to 5% and it got worse from there. Is this just lip service? And what do you put the causal 
value of, of why women dropped out um, at these banks, at the VP and beyond. So I, I agree wholeheartedly with Valerie. I do think it's lip service, and I wouldn't attribute that. I've worked at the three institutions. It's not unique lip service. It's actually consistent lip service. And the reason why is that the easiest place for the firms to measure and to try to show some progress is in the entry classes. So from my experience, all of the firms are going to work like heck to be 50-50 gender balanced and to have very stated targets on both black and Latino representation in the entry classes. But from the moment those classes come in, there's virtually nothing reported about the attrition. And that to me is the most stunning fact, which is why when I reference the diversity back at Solomon, people continue to be blown away by that. So I've always believed you don't change what you don't measure. And this is one of the core things that the measurement, unfortunately, is just at the, at the entry level. I hope that I would love to pick up people like Valerie and Valerie's friends, because the other factor, especially in mergers and acquisitions, is that the women who become technically incredibly strong uh, will often feel like they're not convinced that they're going to be a future originator or rainmaker, even though they probably will be even better in the long run than some of their male peers. But I think a number of women have a hard time visualizing themselves as ringing the cash register. And my hope would be that, you know, I've got a great um, setup for those women. I'm going to need really strong technical M&A women, and I'm more than happy to help create the opportunities. But I think that there's a way for those women to really, really shine. Uh, but it is it, it is profoundly the worst in mergers and acquisitions. And uh, the firms that don't have uh, either capital markets and the big banks, frankly, are relying on their consumer numbers to distort the reality and make it look like diversity is actually improved. Tell me a little bit about your business plan. How how do you plan um, to get in the meetings? Um, how are you working with partners? How is it? How what what's your attack plan? So I've been really lucky that uh, a global advisory firm who wanted to recruit me has actually been really interested by the concept. And so we're, we're fingers crossed deep into discussions about whether we could forge an affiliation with a firm that would both provide us the startup equity, but then also really values the 15 women senior advisors that I've curated. And so I think they, they have woken up and realized they have less than a handful of senior women in their firm. They know they're showing up at key pitches and they're risking losing more and more business when they show up with 10 white men to a pitch. So you could cynically say maybe they just want to pink wash their team, but I also think they realize that the women that we curated have an incredible network of board relationships and certain areas of expertise. And so for that exclusive right, they're willing to pay us uh, as a, a service fee to effectively tap into that network. And that allows us really to get off to the races quickly on building the capital market side of the business. We will file to be an independent broker dealer. We want to be a 
an approved women-owned business. And so the hope is that we find our way into at least the minority capital markets flow, which given the data I shared, that's an existing market that people see growing. But I hope we do a lot better than that because I'm being, um, as you would expect, incredibly focused on exceptional people. And I think if we can show that we have recent people with great advice, uh, there's also a chance to supplement that with some key advisory assignments. So fingers crossed, but, but to your point, you know, I think if we can launch with a little bit of help and play into timing in the world that right now feels very favorable to us, um, I hope that will give us a, give us a fighting shot. Uh, I have a question for Susan Salton. Larry, one, one, yeah, thank you. One, one other question. And, and it does seem to me that with the movement, both in the U S and globally, to increase the numbers, whether by statutorily or otherwise, on boards, women and minorities on boards, that's got to open up, you know, the avenues to, uh, to your, to your um, I think, fabulous idea and, and business plan. Um, and, and maybe you could talk about how we can capitalize on, on that, because it's often driven, you know, relationships are driven by board members in, in a lot of instances. And how do you think that will factor into what you're, what you're planning? It's a great question. So I have to say, I I really didn't know how deep and how powerful the group of women board members were until I started to focus on this about 18 months ago. And, and I focused on it after I joined my first public board for a great company called Amphenol. And what you realize is that these women take their board service incredibly seriously. They they show up prepared, they want to ask great questions, they want to be current on all of the critical governance topics. And so my hope is that if we both continue, and we curate content with these 500 women on average every four to six weeks. And so I think if we can first just educate and inform this group on the benefits of cognitive diversity, can they ask the question? I'm not counting on a single woman handing us a piece of business on a silver platter. I don't think that would be fair, but I think if they ask the question, I think that will create an opening. And then if it's between hiring Evercore or hiring us, every dollar that they spend with us will also help the company work toward their own ESG objectives, which I think a number of directors are very focused on that the big commitments companies made to shareholders on where they would be by 2025 on ESG. Hopefully, we become a, a convenient way to get great advice, but also to increase vendor diversity. Uh, and so, you know, I think you're going to see mo with, with a lot of companies already substantially through their board change composition, the question is, what's the next places where ESG will go? And I think vendor diversity is the logical one. You see it probably on the legal side. There are a handful of the companies I work with where the general counsels are demanding that the law firm staff with diverse teams or the accounting firms. So is it a crazy supposition that it would extend to financial services? Maybe, but, but maybe not. Um, so, it, but it's a group. It, it's a group of people that I also think, just from a lead generation, have never been tapped into. And so, hopefully, uh, hopefully, we can 
can help put a spotlight on all this talent and the role that they can play in driving change. I have a question for you, Ann, about uh, minority uh, municipal bond and corporate uh, underwriting teams. Um, historically, it, when I worked in capital markets and then later when I worked um, on the trading side uh, where I was uh, – I worked with these municipal firms as a customer, um, it seemed to me that the, uh, the minority firms really didn't uh, add a lot of value to the process. Um, they were definitely paid, as you, as you said, when they got 43% of the proceeds of the U.S. investment grade market, but they were really not, neither really selling the bonds nor were they um, providing much um, advice to the corporations borrowing the money. How do you think about the success and failure of the minority firm model in the capital markets area? So it's a great question, and it's a source of enormous frustration for the corporates who I know well. These big companies want to do the right thing. They want to spread their wallet and support the minority firms, but they're incredibly frustrated by exactly what you just said. So I would share a couple of observations, and these are only my observations. This isn't based on deep data. The first observation is that of the firms I've looked into, Virtually none of them have people with recent experience in a capital markets role on Wall Street. And part of that could be that they've not wanted to pay the cost of having to buy people out of other firms. So it may be that the economics just haven't worked for them, but they've largely relied on kind of home growing the talent or moving people, as you said, from unis, which is a completely different market than corporate bonds or equity capital markets. So there's a significant training gap. Uh, they're trying to use bringing orders in from their legacy muni relationships as a way to prove that they're adding value. The challenge with that is most of us who've worked in capital markets know that hasn't really mattered for 20 years. It's In fact, it's probably more of a nuisance than really net new distribution uh, to interesting buyers. And so my hope is that Without, um, without offending the incredible hard work that these firms have put in, I'm hoping we can quickly draw the obvious conclusion that we have people who have run capital markets. We have people who've sat in, in debt syndicate and equity syndicate seats and that there's the ability to lead with great advice and at the same time, the final important component is I'm committing to hiring minority junior staffing. And that's one of the biggest frustrations that corporates are observing. You know, one of the biggest technology companies in the world uh, wrote a paper on the lack of authenticity of their minority underwriters because they, they found that there were actually very few people of color um, in the firms that were representing themselves to be minority underwriters. So I'm hopeful there's a real opportunity to, to improve upon a model that already exists and show that you can get great advice while also supporting the mission of hiring and training the next generation of talent. And thank you. We're going to go on to our second speaker, Paul Ray. Uh, Paul is the Charles and Louise Lee Chair in the Western Heritage in the Van Endo Graduate School of Statesmanship at Hillsdale College, and he's going to speak today about cycles and American politics. Paul, please begin. Thank you, Larry. In November 1787, 
in writing to a correspondent on the subject of Shays' rebellion, Thomas Jefferson observed, God forbid we should ever be 20 years without such a rebellion. The real danger was that his compatriots would remain quiet under their misconceptions. In this, he perceived a lethargy that he described as the forerunner of death to the public liberty. And so he asked, what country can preserve its liberties if their rulers are not warned from time to time that their people preserve the spirit of resistance? Let them take arms. The remedy is to set them right to facts, pardon, and pacify them. What signify a few lives lost in a century or two? The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. We are, I think, fortunate that Americans have rarely taken to arms, and that except during the Civil War, there has been very little spilling of blood. My thesis today is that it has rarely come to this for a reason. Thanks to the Constitution designed by James Madison and his colleagues in Philadelphia in 1787, Americans have had a way to engage in an insurrection without bloodshed. They have done so at intervals of slightly more than the 20 years that Jefferson had in mind, and these upheavals have been occasioned by their fears of the very thing that Jefferson feared, the emergence of an oligarchy in Washington, D.C., that renders our federal government unaccountable to the country's people. When were there such insurrections? About once in every 24 years. I call it the 24-year itch. In 1776, obviously, but that involved bloodshed and did not take place under the Constitution designed by James Madison. In 1800, however, 24 years after 1776, if Jefferson himself is to be trusted, with the ouster of the Federalists, a revolution took place. In the period from 1824 to 1828, with the movement founded by Andrew Jackson. In the period from 1852 to 1856, when the Whig Party collapsed and the Democratic Party began to fall apart. In 1876, with the end of Reconstruction. In 1896, with William Jennings Bryan's hostile takeover of the Democratic Party. In 1920, with William G. Harding's return to normalcy and the largest Republican landslide in history. In 1946, with the Republican victory in the congressional and senatorial elections. In 1968, when George Wallace won the Democratic primary in Michigan and shook up American politics as a third-party candidate. In 1992, when Ross Perot ran as a third-party candidate and shook up American politics again. And, of course, in 2016, when there was a hostile takeover of both of our political parties, with Donald Trump, who was not a Republican, winning the Republican nomination, and Bernie Sanders, who was not a Democrat, forcing his policies on the Democratic Party. There is, I would submit, a rhythm to American politics. Once in every generation, there is an anti-oligarchical and largely peaceful insurrection 
that leads to a reshaping of the American political scene. It ordinarily coincides with a presidential election, and even when the insurrection fails, as it did in 1896, in 1968, and in 1992, it has a considerable subsequent impact. I do not mean to say that events do not matter. The Civil War and the Great Depression are the most important events in the history of our republic. I only mean to say that what I will call the anti-federalist temper, the sneaking suspicion that the establishment in D.C., constituting the members of both political parties, are acting in concert to benefit themselves and their friends, runs deep in American politics, and occasions an eruption roughly once in every quarter century. I would also submit that the eruption that took place in 2016 was an especially powerful one, and that we are in for turbulent times as we take in its implications. In 1787, Jefferson wrote to Abigail Adams and to James Madison on this theme. To the first, he observed, the spirit of resistance to government is so valuable on certain occasions that I wish it to be always kept alive. It will often be exercised when wrong, but better so than not to be exercised at all. I like a little rebellion now and then. It is like a storm in the atmosphere. To Madison, he remarked that political turbulence is an evil productive of good. It prevents the degeneracy of government and nourishes a general attention to public affairs. It is a medicine necessary for the sound health of governments. Thank you, Paul. All right. Um, let's go back to the 2016 revolution that occurred, as you said, in both parties. Um, on the Trump side, one of the areas that was this anti-expert, um, anti-bureaucracy, um, anti-federal governments um, at its core. But it doesn't seem like the bureaucracy has been changed by any of that. Um, they, they're just as powerful in their abilities to, to continue to run the government. Uh, how, how will this revolution check uh, the bureaucracy? And to what extent was the revolution on the Democratic side, the Bernie Sanders side, was that a, a pro-bureaucracy, a pro-expert revolution? And so that's where the rubber meets the road. And is that the hostility that we should expect? Is it a bureaucratic uh, battle? Um, let me start with Sanders because it's the easier, easier question to answer. Um, the effect of what Sanders did uh, was not to throw out the likes of Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, but to put them in a box where virtually all of their underlings, once you get below the cabinet level, uh, are people that uh, are in league with Bernie Sanders. Uh, and the effect of it is um, a real push for a fairly radical change in American policy, which may or may not go through. Um, but what it did do is it forced the Democratic Party uh, to cater to its left wing in a way that had, it had not done uh, in previous administrations, Jimmy Carter, uh, Bill Clinton, not even Barack Obama, really. Um, 
on the Republican side, uh, Trump was defeated by uh, the bureaucracy to a considerable degree, um, the media elite, uh, the elite within his own party. But that one's not over. And, and the reason is that he achieved his victory in 2016 by bringing in people to vote, many of whom were not voting, and by appealing to a demographic that the Republican Party has ignored for a very long time, which is the working stiff. Uh, and my instinct is he has changed the direction the Republican Party will go. Um, Democratic Party has abandoned the working class to a large degree. Uh, it is it is now become the party of uh, people who live in the fanciest zip codes in America. Uh, and that abandoned group, which includes many African-Americans and many Hispanics, uh, could easily be picked up and to some degree was picked up by Trump, not to a sufficient degree to win him the election. But I think the Republican Party is going to look rather different. Um, and there, there are two major effects he has had. Neoliberal parties policies are dead. Um, the whole neoliberal globalist agenda uh, has ground to a halt, uh, and 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 there is now uh, a recognition that you need to focus on American citizens who have been nudged out of jobs by the export of American industries. That's one side to it. There's another area in which he affected a decisive change that has been picked up by the Biden administration, and that has to do with both American economic relations with China and also with uh, American political relations within China. Uh, for 30 years, from the first Bush through Democratic and Republican administrations, we followed a policy towards China uh, that was one of opening up our markets, of encouraging their economic growth, uh, and of bringing them into um, the liberal world political order. Uh, and it is now almost universally recognized by policymakers that that was uh, a disaster. Um, the Biden, the Obama administration began to think about that. That's what the pivot to Asia was supposed to be about. But it was the Trump administration, um, largely because uh, he took on uh, the the bureaucracy, and I'm thinking of the foreign policy bureaucracy, that was set on a kind of path from uh, the first Bush all the way through Obama, uh, and he won that battle. Uh, that's going to make a huge difference down the road. When I look at your list of revolutions in American history, your choices seem a little ad hoc. So, for example, uh, in the middle of the century, you have the Harding landslide in 1920 and Republicans taking back the Congress in 1946. If someone had said to me, what was the most important change in government during that period, I would have thought it would have been the election of 1932 with the landslide of FDR. Uh, what he did was he radically changed the role and scope of the federal government, something that the 1920 Harding landslide could never have would have considered, and nothing that the 1946 Republican landslide and the Congress would have stopped. Um, 
why why sh- why do you view these choices that you made as not being ad hoc? Why do you um, why can't we just say that there's constant change and tension and different roles for government and, and that a democratic process allows for um, change in leadership, change in ideas uh, in that battle uh, with the public? Look, I don't deny that events matter. Um, you could have said what you said just about the Great Depression. You could have said about the election of Abraham Lincoln. Uh so the 1860 is a much more important date than these dates that fit into the rhythm of yeah. American politics, and 1932 is. Uh, when something big happens, uh, it, it has a huge impact. But despite that, every so often there is this upheaval, and there's a kind of pattern to it. Um, For example, your two examples, 1920 and 1946, both of them involve a kind of rebellion against the administrative state. Uh, The the, the Harding election is a rejection of what Woodrow Wilson stood for, uh, both in foreign affairs but also in domestic affairs because during world – you know, the, the, the the, the dry run of 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 um the new deal was under uh, uh under wilson those last two years in which the american economy was run out of washington similarly um 1946 had a rather huge uh impact uh harry truman wanted to keep wage and price controls after world war 2 uh and think about the impact of the Taft-Hartley bill on American uh, mm-hmm. uh, relations between companies and workers and and so forth. You know, labor is still trying to get the Taft-Hartley bill repealed. Um, so uh, is it as big a change as 1932? No way. Um, and uh, is the end of Reconstruction as uh, in in 1876 as big a change as 1860? No way. Events matter more than this rhythm, but the rhythm goes on, and the rhythm will have an impact. It will force an adjustment in American politics. Let me go give you a different example of the same idea. You focused on uh, George Wallace's victory in the Michigan um, presidential primary. And you also mentioned the success that Ross Perot had as a third-party candidate in 1992. But if someone asked me during that period what were the two biggest impacts over the period, I would have thought that the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980 as a rejection of a big government would be one. And the another one would be the huge landslide the Democrats had it in 1974, with that enormously large uh, left class, left-wing class in the in the House that made policy um, throughout the 1970s and the 1980s. Frankly, how do you how do you think about why Wallace, why Perot, and not those other two factors as being the real factors of change? Well, they were factors of change. And look, let me throw something else in: the Great Society. Uh, uh, that that. That was um, New Deal number two. Uh, so lots of other things happen. But when you get something like what George Wallace did, uh, it, it forces a rethinking. Uh, 
and and it took place. Uh, I covered the Wallace campaign. I was a 19-year-old uh, reporter for the Oklahoma Journal, a now defunct newspaper in Oklahoma City. And I covered that campaign. It was just in, in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, it was absolutely fascinating. And he turned out uh, a set of voters uh, that um, the, the parties had to adjust to. Uh, it, it was very important for putting Nixon into office that those voters, largely Democrats, were subtracted from the Democratic Party. Uh, 1992, you know, the, the, the Ross Perot phenomenon, I think, had to do with the savings and loan scandal. Uh, and by and large, that involved Democrats, but it involved also the son of uh, the elder George Bush uh, out in Colorado. And so the consequences were there was a sense in which there was something awful going on, uh, real corruption, and there wasn't going to be uh, – uh, uh, the, the grievances weren't going to be dealt with. And Ross Perot played upon that, and it forced a kind of rethinking. Uh, I think the Clinton administration, had Bill Clinton been elected that year without Ross Perot being involved in the race – would have fall, followed very different policies, much more to the left. Hey, Larry, um, can I ask a question? It's Ann. Go ahead, Ann, please. So, so I'm just I'm curious, Paul, is, is there, given how incredibly polarized our country is, is there any hope that a centrist revolution or a centrist candidate can tackle that? Or do you think that we're just going to have to continue to go to the extreme of polarization before we hit a tipping point? It's a good question. I'm not sure that I have the answer to it. Um, the, uh, the, the polarization may continue uh, until somebody wins a big victory. And see, right now, for the last, uh, since, say, the year 2000, it's been a 50-50 country. Uh, uh, Michael Barone is a friend of mine, and I can remember talking with him about this. And he said to me, this was true uh, in the post-Civil War period, too, not so much at the presidential level, but at the congressional level. And, the, and in those days, Congress really ran the show. Uh, and uh, you'd get things moving back and forth and back and forth. And he said, the competition becomes extremely bitter in those circumstances, um, because uh, each party thinks they can win. They can win. Um, I don't know how this will play out, but I do know that the Republican Party is very likely to change uh, in character in light of the demographic that was brought into the picture by Trump. And the Democratic Party is going to have to cope with uh, the the Bernie supporters, um, and they have got to cope with it without going over fully to them, or they're really going to lose. Um, uh, it's a tricky it's a tricky balance to play. That doesn't answer your question, but I don't have an answer to that question. You talked about a lack of bloodshed. Um, why has the democratic process um, or these bloodless revolutions that you've described every 24 years calm the violence? Why is, is there a sense of legitimacy to democratic change? 
is there a sense of legitimacy to the constitutional constructs? If we wipe out the, um, some of the, the major balancing acts that our constitution allows with separation of powers, do you think we will tend to move back towards more violent ways to settle disputes? Look, if you eliminate the separation of powers, um, then what you will have is a kind of dictatorship, uh, a kind of monarchy. And we've seen something like that at the state level in a lot of the states uh, in response to the coronavirus crisis. Uh, and it has generated a great deal of anger and resentment, um, uh, partly because the, the many of the regulations seemed arbitrary, uh, partly because the people who um, handed down the regulations often did not abide themselves by their own regulations. People notice things like that. Um, the separation of powers has a way of diffusing that. And the importance of the legislative branch, which has been declining in American politics, um, really ever since Teddy Roosevelt found his bully pulpit, uh, but more emphatically in recent years, um, the decline in the significance of the legislative branch is not a good thing because it is, especially the House, is the most responsive to shifts in opinion. Uh, and that allows a kind of accommodation of the people who are aggrieved. Um, look, the way the democratic process works is we are asked every four years, shall we execute the guy in office? And we can execute him without bloodshed. Uh, and uh, the, it, it's, it's often a kind of, it's often focused on him and not on his opponent. You can see that in the 2016 election. Um, and, and so it allows for a venting of anger, resentment, and so forth. Um, and that venting, if it can be channeled in such a way that um, no permanent damage is done to people, uh, is a very good thing. Uh, you know, behind Jefferson's thinking, by the way, in all this is Machiavelli. Uh, Machiavelli, in his discourses on Livy, was the first figure to say solidarity is not good for politics, conflict is good for politics, and tumults, meaning riots. Uh, if your institutions are right, can be an excellent thing. Um, and Jefferson is the heir to Machiavelli in that way. But in a certain sense, electoral politics uh, serves the same function, uh, and it allows a redress of grievances without violence. And it's crucial that that be a possibility, which is to say that there be frequent elections, and that the uh, you know that the elections be conducted fairly, that the votes actually get counted. Let me let me try something. Uh, I want to go back to uh, Anne's question for a second, um, and she was really asking you uh, when can we have a, a centrist House, a centrist Senate, and a centrist president. Um, and you just mentioned that these elections are really close, that these are a 50-50 nation, that we could easily see a flip in the Senate or the House in either direction at, at, any, at any moment. Um, why have the political parties 
not try to govern from based upon the median voter to grab that central uh, case? Why are they continuing to, why is the Biden administration choosing to um, govern from the hard left? Uh, I, I don't know if, if, in your opinion, if, if Trump governed from the hard right or he governed from the center, um, I think what he may have done is just governed in a way that was inconsistent with previous partisanship. Um, what are your thoughts about um, why don't political parties govern from the center when you have a, a voter stock that's very close to the middle? Uh, one reason is the two parties have gotten to be very good at turning out their bases. And so there has been a tendency to concentrate on turning out your base. Uh, and if you can turn out enough of them, uh, then you win. Uh, the, the, the reach for the center uh, takes place when your base is not enough. Um, Trump's a kind of bad example of this because, uh, you know, he, he, he stepped on tr traditional republicanism just as hard as he stepped on the sort of the, the, the Democrats. And he actually brought into the Republican Party policies that on immigration, for example, that uh, the Democrats had, 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 had once championed. Uh, when we had um, blue-collar labor unions on a very large scale, uh, there was, within the Democratic base, uh, a real suspicion of immigration. And it was shared by African-Americans because their jobs were at stake. Um, the Republicans wanted cheap labor, so they, they wanted relatively open borders. Um, it was complicated because, of course, the, the, the decision reached in the 1920s to limit immigration was lifted under John Kennedy. Uh, but, you know, he was kind of emphatically from a, um, uh, an immigrant background himself, and that had an awful lot to do with it. Paul, thank you very much. We're going to go on to our next speaker, who is Lisa Picard. Uh, our next guest is Lisa Picard. She is the CEO of EQ Office, which is Blackstone's office division. Uh, she spends her time thinking about where the office market is heading. Lisa, go ahead. If we're going to talk about the future of office, we really have to talk about the future of work, the future of the worker and then the future of the workplace. Now, first on work, I think given the pace of technological changes, work is deeply knowledge-based. And in a world where there's repetitious tasks, they'll definitely become more robotic processes to sort of like you know, program that algorithm. The World Economic Forum in 2019 said that 25% of the workforce will be comprised of new roles, and that really over 50% of the existing workforce must grow and advance and upskill themselves. So in essence, the workforce must become more flexible, remote, and decentralized. And we were already seeing this decentralization. The talent is driving decisions. And they were driving decisions before, but even now with the great attrition that's happening, um, there's incredible tensions between leadership and talent. And, um, and with these acute talent shortages, specifically knowledge workers with those digital skills, companies are having to pay more higher, um, and also pay more for the existing talent. And really what's happening is that talent seeks leadership proximity and opportunity, 
And if that opportunity is less cost housing or if that opportunity is the potential to grow their career, that's what's really driving a lot of the talent decisions. Talent is also wanting the fresh start. This is what's leading to the great attrition. But ultimately, the worker is driven by opportunity. When we look at what happens with the workplace, what job will the office perform going forward? There's sort of two functions, two roles in the organization. There's the defensive moves and there's the offensive moves. The defensive moves is getting your labor and your workforce to do everything that it already knows how to do. The offensive moves are the things that grow and advance the business, move it down the field. And the, and the offensive moves are incredibly hard to do in isolation. And so that's what's really creating this tension between leadership and talent. Talent loves the freedom, loves the calling the shots and making its own day, with the exception of the younger, the younger, uh, the younger uh, cohort. The younger cohort is actually seen that they've kind of fallen back behind. And so given the nature that the work is rapidly changing, that the worker needs to upskill, and now that the workplace is becoming a place that needs to mentor, needs to educate, needs to entertain, needs to rejuvenate on the whole aspect of wellness, what the future of the office they have to do is pull people to the office, not push them to the office, not a dictatorial, you must be here, but pull them. And I like to think about them into four C's. The effective workplace offers concentration offers an ability for collaboration among colleagues, offers community, a place that you feel like you're part of a purpose and belonging, and fourth, it offers convenience, all the things that you can't do at home. And I've been adding a fifth one, control, giving you control over your environment. And I would probably like to end with just saying from Master Yoga, difficult to see, always in motion, is the future. You said that 25% of work are new roles, and 50% is existing jobs that are upskilling. Take any, take any field. Describe like what, what that means in context, and how, and how does the office yeah. environment fit into upskill? Let's just take you know, a, a worker at Salesforce who maybe have been in marketing and realize that the, the, the nature and in the, in the, in the way in which you reach the customer from a marketing perspective is more the pull than the push. And this you know, employee was sort of skilled in the push, um, which means like I'm pushing out messages to you via digital channels versus working with an influencer network or working with collaborative companies who actually pull people into you know, selling that product, right? And so this worker decides, you know what, I'm gonna upskill and I'm going to figure out how to actually learn coding. And I'm going to learn how to essentially digitally code some of these aspects or algorithms that naturally find, you know, uh, buyers through digital networks as opposed to me writing copy. I also think that people who, you know, do um, repetitious work um, and they're cranking out a product, they may be, you know, producing uh, financial models. And they, it's a very easy job that they can do, you know, at home because someone just gives them the assumptions, they plug it in. If you're just planning to continually crank out your work, then I think that's problematic. I had a, a friend of mine who is a, a commercial real estate broker in Chicago. And pre-COVID, yeah. I asked her what, uh, what type of subleases are out there, what's available. And she told me that basically every law firm in Chicago recognized that they had way too much space. They had an office for everyone, and they're going to this model where um, an employee that came in could use any office. 
They could just kind of click and play. And mm-hmm. Nicholas Bloom, who was on our show a few months ago, uh, analyzed the future of work. Uh, he's a professor at Stanford. He imagined a world where you know the marketing team might come to the office on Monday and Wednesday, and the technology team might come to the office on Tuesday and Thursday, and mm-hmm. on Friday maybe we all get together uh, to talk about firm-wide decisions. And so there's a notion of if your organization is siloed and you're still in a hierarchical or traditional machine, you know, uh, machine-based structure as opposed to an agile network structure, then it's perfectly logical that you would sort of set up, um, you know, the marketing team to show up one day and then, you know, each of the silos to show up a particular day. But if you're a networked or a an agile organization, you're figuring out the teams, the collaborative teams, and those teams are developing charters for how they want to work and make decisions together. And you'll find that those companies are actually, you know, driving different solutions. Um, you know, I was talking to a CEO um, one day who was really, you know, struggling with the talent that wants to work at home and some of the talent, the younger talent that wants to, um, you know, be in the office because the younger talent has all felt like last year they've lost the advancement um, in their careers and in fact um, a side note to that is that you know over the the last um, few months we've been interviewing for uh, analysts and senior associates and when asked why are they leaving their current job the number one reason why they are saying they're leaving their job is because their manager is not coming into the office they feel that they're going to miss this opportunity for learning another technology company I was talking to in Seattle going to go with that hoteling model that you sort of mentioned that everybody would sort of be able to check out a desk when they arrived. And there was an insane revolt that happened within the organization, largely because there's this logical thing that happens when you give somebody space in an office. They feel a part of the organization. I remember in 2008 when the crisis hit, um, I spoke to some buddies of mine who worked at like a Canadian bank in New York City. And they always assumed they were going to grow, and so they had like an extra floor just in case for growth. And when everyone said, oh, my God, not only do we not need that extra floor, but we can actually, we have an extra floor to go, um, it put an enormous pressure on office rents. You know, this is a very uh, you know, vertical supply curve that where price is going to collapse if an enormous percentage of the market becomes available. What do you think the needs for office space will be? Will it be, you know, down 10, down 20, down 30 percent? And will that have this, an incredibly dramatic negative impact on real estate? Jane Jacobs talk about, you know, what's the implications for B minus C plus office is that it needs to be transitioned into residential. Do you see a tremendous excess of office space and that that office space will be transitioned towards residential and, and dense urban areas? How do you think about the whole picture? No, this is a phenomenal question. And it really comes down to supply-constrained markets and supply-constrained markets that have demand drivers and non-supply-constrained markets that don't have demand drivers. And let me give an example of, you know, what's, what's, what's really going to happen here is that we have the bifurcation of two kinds of products, right? The, the human loves new products. And so we have new construction, which is always desired and seems to be a panacea for talent attraction. And, you know, to get that, companies pay an enormous price to get new construction. And what I mean by an enormous price, they sign 10, 12-year leases. 
And I don't know what technology company knows how big they're going to be in three years, but certainly over 10 years, they're going to be wrong. And so typically, to your point, what happens is, is they plan 10% growth a year. They're signing a 10-year lease. They're doubling the size of space they need day one than what they need, you know, uh, uh, currently, right? So they'll get 2x the space. And this, as to your point, takes down a heck of a lot of space that, you know, may end up on the sublease market for a while, or if they have a good cash position, they just want to control it just in case um, it is creating pressures. Then you have everything else. And if it's and still your father's office building, and it's going to, you know, be your father's office building, it's going to be a race to the bottom because the market and the customer is only going to be able to differentiate by price. And if there's a ton of supply in these non-supply constrained markets or in markets that have not, don't have demand drivers, you know, that don't have really big demand drivers like D.C. or Chicago, um, I think we're seeing demand come back pretty strong in New York right now. But I think it's got a long road to go because there's a lot of product. But in markets like L.A. and markets like the Bay Area and markets like Seattle and Boston, there are constraints to supply. Things, you know, are defined to a particular area and these have very strong demand drivers. And so in those markets, I think you're going to find product will do just fine. In fact, it'll take a little bit of time to absorb some of the stuff. But, you know, I don't think you're going to have, you know, issues that you saw in Dallas where you know, some of the product is considered obsolete, you know. And obsolete means that it's been vacant for more than three years. I don't know Dallas, but I, I'm familiar with New York City a little bit. And you mentioned new product and the newest of the new product uh, Pre-COVID was Hudson Yards was coming online, yeah. and there was a lot of excitement. People were planning to move out there. A number of my hedge fund buddies got some space in Hudson Yards, and they were totally psyched. And then, you know, when COVID hit, not only did Hudson Yards get in trouble, but all the retail and a bunch of the residential properties also really, you know, didn't do well. How do you think about the new new as you think about Hudson Yards and the problems that it has? What's interesting about new products and new markets is it creates an entirely new energy, even if it doesn't make any sense from a geographic perspective. You talk to any real estate person who understands the traditional dynamics in New York, and they're like, Hudson Yards, I just don't get it. And I got it just because it's new product. It's just a shiny new object. I think how they do over time really depends on if there's infrastructure to support you know, a population to get you know, relatively easy access to that. Fulton Market in Chicago, it was outside the loop. People were like, that's crazy. Like, there's no train that goes over there. Well, there's this thing called Uber, and there's really great food and beverage and amazing environments, and those buildings just keep getting built and built and built in a market that has pretty substantial vacancy. So I think you're going to see continued bifurcation of this market between new products that have high amenities, great ground floors and energies that really feel that you're a part of the community. Fulton Market started as a food and beverage mecca. Food and beverage. Where did this come from? Yeah. Oh, my God, this place is fantastic. And then office kind of went to the, the new food and beverage place. Is that a different way of thinking about it? This is not if you build it, they will come, but we built food and beverage, and then office said, oh, my God, we got to be next to that because that's where the fun is. Uh, is, is that how well, we're, we're yeah, and that's where talent that's where talent wants to be. Talent wants to be near the cool stuff. And so if you can sort of highlight to people on your HR tour, look at all these cool restaurants and places you can be and you can hang out with your colleagues, people start to envision their lifestyle. Now keep in work keep in mind, like work is a lifestyle now. It's not like a place that I clock in at, at eight and clock out at five. These are people that are part of my community and so I wanna know what's a part of my community. And so much so that this ground floor experience and environment 
is so much a part of how we curate office buildings now. Brooklyn, mm-hmm. when I was a young man, uh, City put out that tower in the middle of Brooklyn, and everyone said, my God, is anyone ever going to go out there? Um, and now we have a whole host of young people living there with cool hotels, cool restaurants. But I haven't seen a lot of office being built in Brooklyn. Would you think that Brooklyn is going to become an, a new office mecca, or is it going to remain just primarily res and uh, retail? I mean, here's, here's the interesting thing about office and the way in which companies pursue office space. Jobs follow people, right? People don't necessarily follow jobs unless it's like, you know, I've always wanted to work for Tesla and I go follow them to Austin, Texas. But for the most part, jobs are going to that location so they can capture that talent. If you think about Brooklyn, you know, and my access to talent, how do I get Brooklynites? I mean, downtown is the centroid for getting Brooklynites and also people in New Jersey and people further up uh, Manhattan, right? And so I think that the challenge with putting office in Brooklyn is that it's not the centroid of talent, right? You can, you can access Brooklyn talent by being in downtown, but you can't access talent elsewhere when you're in Brooklyn. Yeah, it's, it's pretty limited to Brooklyn only because of the transportation um, mm-hmm. That's right. problem. Well, that was why it was kind of interesting what you mentioned with Fulton Market, which is not very transportation friendly. I mean, no. the metro station is no. not bad, um, but you know the rest of it isn't really designed to go that area. Well, but what about Uber? Uber can solve that, but Uber can't solve a lot of things. I mean, we have, no. you know, what COVID did was traffic has been non-existent. Traffic's going to come back with a vengeance, and when it does, it's going to limit where work can be. So how do you think about the transportation nexus as being uh, the critical variable for where you're going to build your new office buildings? Yeah. Uh, No, it's a phenomenal point. And going back to the Fulton Market example, I think the thing that really shifted and was the vote of confidence is when McDonald's moved their headquarters in from the suburbs into the Fulton Market neighborhood, right? Because they were deliberately going after, they couldn't hire young people. And as soon as they went into Fulton Market, they were able to hire a ton of young people who wanted to work in that market. And they oh, were, cool. you know, they, they, they realized that McDonald's was a different company because it had totally shifted from the suburbs and moved into the city. Um, but I think your comment about transportation and access is really going to be key. So when I look at a market, let's say like Austin, which was the only market that actually had job growth during 2020, office employment growth in 2020. Austin that has had like unbelievable growth and has absolutely no infrastructure to support transit except the car. And this is going to be a really interesting experiment. I feel like there's a ton of uncertainty and you opened with what's so incredible about the new building is they're able to lock people down for 10 year leases. Do you yeah. think the long-term lease is a thing of the past or is, is that something you can still persuade or is the fear of the unknown sublease market and the unknown employment market for them or the unknown future for them so high that they may not wish to enter term leases yeah exactly my point of the bifurcation of the market you're only going to enter the long-term lease to essentially engage in new construction because the, the quantity of supply of new construction is so finite and to get it, you're willing to commit huge resources and take a big, you know, swallow a big pill. And what's happening in the office industry is the lease has gotten shorter and shorter and the retention rates have gotten smaller and smaller. Uh, in, in essence, the landlords have to do more to create a stickiness and a higher service level. Pre-COVID, 
WeWorks was the phenomena. They took down a crazy amount of, of space yeah. in every market. They were the number one guy. And they offered a product to get rid of term. And in exchange, we're going to jam you in tighter than you ever thought was possible in an office environment, and not just with people who you work with, but strangers. Now, in a period of COVID, that seems insane. I think the concept that was there was actually allowing sort of a much more flexible lease strategy. Um, you know, I, 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 I know, you know, a lot of sort of the WeWork practices were, you know, in essence, buying top line revenue to essentially obviously reach, you know, their revenue targets and, and many of the things weren't sustainable. I mean, they, they sort of structured a lot of things that had duration matching issues between long-term leases and sort of buying really short-term deals. Um, but I think the model in and of itself, a high service level model with a really good digital layer that gives, you know, companies a purview as to sort of usage. And so there are operators in this space who really figured out the model and they're in it for the long game. You started the conversation by saying, look, it's about collaboration and getting pulled to work. And if Nicholas Bloom is right, where, um, you know, we need to meet at the office to talk about and collaborate about certain things on a very flexible schedule. Is is that Regis space where they can offer, you know, conference rooms and digital technology in a very easy way? Is that just going to just dominate and allow for you know multiple firms to work in shared spaces? Is is that is that our future? Yeah. Is that yeah, I think um, you, you're going to you're going to see sort of the hotelification of the office market, right? Um, they're going to see a variety of different products that suit, you know, different needs. Um, you know, a lot of people don't like the Regis model. They don't like the aesthetics. They don't like the vibe. So they'll go pursue, you know, a different hotel brand, right? Uh, one that they do like. And many owners are getting into the space and and figuring out ways of which they um, they can they can parse out the space and also you know, provide a product to the market that the office, that the, that the marketplace wants. But I do think what's interesting today is that the legacy way of building out space, the legacy way of procuring space, of hiring a broker, procuring your space a year from now, and, it, you know, basically it takes you, you know, six months to build it out with all of the requirements that cities have and the construction processes, right, that most people when they're out in the market and they need space, they, real, they, they realize they need it like today. And they can't wait a year to get it went to a shared space in London pre-COVID, and I went to visit a friend of mine, and he was in some space, but it was weird. There was like no windows, and it was packed. I mean, it was very dense office. And, you know, we said, okay, we got to hang out. What are we going to do? I mean, so we went downstairs, and they were offering beer, and there was like a party going on in the office, which was kind of complicated. And I said, this is ridiculous. We can't work here either. Let's just go to a restaurant and order some food and talk. Is that really what young people want? I like to think about how did you learn? When, when, when I was in college, I had a laptop that lasted like about maybe 35 minutes, and then I had to find a plug and plug in, right? And so that really drove me to learn how to work in a dorm room. You know, and then the next generation really, you know, had mobile devices that lasted much longer, and they could work from a Starbucks, and they could work on top of rooftops, and they, you know, learned to work in cafes because it was sort of a unique space that they felt like they could be seen and see, see be, you know, see and be seen. And so what happened is the whole generation of next workplace to attract the millennials looked like Starbucks cafes, 
right? Because that's how that workforce learned how to do projects and collaborate on assignments. And I think if you want to look at the future of work, look at how kids are learning today. You know, will that learning truly be decentralized and distributed? Will it be fully online content? Will kids truly learn that way? I think the reason why you're seeing all of these bars and cafes and things of that nature that are brought into fancy new workplaces is because they're attracting people from college to say, hey, look, this is just like college for you. It's like you never left. I usually end our show with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about in the office market? I think what I'm optimistic about in the office market is that I think there's a whole new revolution of unique workspaces that truly allow humanity to thrive. What we're seeing is, is this integration of a lot of wellness aspects and a lot of concern of like making sure humans can perform and perform at their best level. And if that's bringing in natural light, if that's bringing in spaces that allow a little R&R, if it's like bringing in medical services or dental services so that there's this aspect of convenience, I think the workplace is not going to be about seeing the human as a machine, but actually seeing the human as a living organism that, that needs care, quite honestly. And then I think all of us can do our best work. Dean Adler, when I asked him about the future of office, he mentioned getting access to fresh air. So he imagined that new construction would have balconies, would have the ability to engage yeah. with the outside. Um, is, do you see that as, as fresh air uh, goes, goes back yeah. to that wellness point you're making? That how do I... Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big it's a big deal. If you think about it like humans as machines, we sort of put them in sort of assembly line or cubicles, right, in the Dilbert style. If we look at humans as things that need to you know, have light and air to, to, to thrive, but the tech companies actually have requirements. If you're building them a new building, they have to have a certain frequency of um, open windows or windows that can open, and these are even in high rises. Decks and, and rooftops and access to the outdoors become key leasing features. We're looking at spaces across our portfolio that we can begin to open up, not at just the ground plane, but at other levels of the building, because these become really treasured amenities and really create differentiation in your product. Great. Um, I want to open up to Anne and to Paul and end uh, potentially on notes of optimism from either of you. Um, Anne or Paul, if either one of you want to go ahead with uh, what you're optimistic about. Sure. But I actually, I, I loved hearing that last presentation because I think that it all points in the same direction, which is that the generation behind us are clearly changing work and the nature of work. Uh, and what started out as a movement around ESG, I do think is going to lead to finally a revolution in how we can provide great advice. And so I'm optimistic that if we listen to uh young women and minorities who have a clear perspective about what the world needs to look like, companies will be better off for it, and we'll all be better off. Paul, you still there? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic about medicine. Um, it, it seems to me, you know, look, the coronavirus did enormous harm, and I'm not sure the lockdowns did much good, but the uh, the work that was done on creating the vaccine is, I think, a turning point in terms of vaccines. There's a whole new technique out there, and I think there's going to be 
um, real good come from that. Vaccines uh, I, I, that, that really I, work. I totally agree with you. Um, I, I think what was also amazing was just how um, the medical establishment was able to figure out, I wouldn't call it a cure, but how to relegate it so it didn't kill you. You know, they they they, were, they figured out by, you know, good old-fashioned work and experimentation, too. That was great. It, amazing work on this. And, you know, the effect of the coronavirus was to speed up various trends. It's not as if there weren't people working on this mRNA kind of vaccines. But suddenly, there was a big push in that direction, and they had resources, and they took advantage of them in a, in a very impressive way. Uh, this discussion about the future of work, um, think what the coronavirus did to the office. Um, it, it, uh, I, I have a friend who worked in the Time Life building, and he, he said one day, he says, I don't think there are 200 people in this building today. Um, people learned that they could work from home. Uh, uh, business travel is going to be less because of Zoom. So there, there, there's, there, there's a, there are transformations coming uh, that I think will do people an awful lot of good. Um, now, I'm not as as um, as optimistic uh, in other regards, and the reason is uh, we're back at another Cold War, uh, and this time we have an adversary that is not shooting itself in the foot economically, um, uh, and and uh, they're formidable. And they mean business. And how this will turn out, I'm not altogether sure. Sorry to blindside with my best friends. Susan Salstein, do you want to leave on a note of optimism? Sure, Larry. So, I, you know, I was optimistic, I guess, listening both, hearing about, um, you know, about what, what, what Anne had to say in terms of, because I do think it's a, it's a new direction and it's, a, uh, you know, a bright future, I think, for 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 women and, and, and diversity. And I think it's going to be helped by how we work and the changes, as I think as your last speaker just noted, the changes in the work environment has, have allowed flexibility and allowed us to realize that we could be productive in ways that doesn't put us, you know, in a box with a, with a small window and, um, you know, no access to, to, to light or air. So um, I, I think we're going to see a lot of changes coming out of it. And I, and, um, and I am optimistic that that, going to be inclusive. And I, and I worry about that word because I always think inclusive also means exclusive, but I think it will bring a new, um, you know, a new viewpoint to how we, how we get things done. Susan, of all my friends, you seem to have enjoyed uh, not working in the office the most. Uh, I, I give you credit for that. Okay, that ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's episode. Our first speaker will be Robert Pondicio. Uh, you met him previously on What Happens Next when he spoke about the Success Academy. Next week, he will speak about his work on critical race theory. He opens his essay in the current issue of Commentary Magazine, noting that critical race theory took over in two ways, first gradually and then suddenly. Robert will speak about how teachers, either individually or in grade-level teams, decide for themselves what gets put in front of children with little if any over oversight from the principal or the school board. I think you will find this discussion to be particularly controversial. Our second speaker is a leading authority on golf strategy. Scott Fawcett has revolutionized how golf pros play tournaments. 
Scott has quantitatively analyzed shot selection in terms of relative risk and reward. Scott's logic and his results are radically changing the sport for both good, uh, good players as well as golf professionals. I think his insights have implications beyond golf as his methods apply to all sports and other dynamic games, just like your business. Our final speaker will be Wharton Marketing Professor Jonah Berger. I met Jonah when I took his course offered by the teaching company entitled How Ideas Spread. Jonah has a new book called Catalyst that explains why certain marketing strategies are most effective. Marketing plans that do not persuade by argument but instead encourage you to make up your own mind to use the product are most effective. Jonah is a highly engaging speaker, and I'm sure this is going to be a superb presentation. If you're interested in listening to replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes or wish a transcript, you'll find them on our website, What Happens Next in Six Minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Please check out our new social media outlet, Twitter, uh, What Happens in Six. We want to engage our audience and hear your views. I want to create a community that learns together. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned uh, next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you, uh, and that ends today's session. Bye-bye.